It was a dark and stormy night at the Brookings Institution. (laughs) (laughs) Five unvaccinated people were invited to a dinner. Yeah. (laughs) There we go. Instead of contact tracing, we just have like mystery theater. No, apparently instead of contact tracing, we just have like an entire industry of like hot takes about how if they're if we're going to be rationing medical treatment we better just like leave the fucking unvaccinated on the slab or whatever um wrong terminology but you get what i mean we are That's we are so cool. be, we are so beyond the concept of a whodunit it's just not <laughs> yeah exactly at this point yeah we've we've spent the whole last year and a half talking about whodunit now we get to just watch them keep doing <laughs> The keep, the keep doing it. Who's keeping doing it? Right, exactly. Yeah. Welcome to our true crime podcast, The Death Panel. It's not so much a who done it as a they keep doing it. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no question asked. They keep doing it. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support our work and get access to our second weekly episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We are entirely listener supported. So patrons, thank you for supporting our work. And if you're not a patron, become a patron. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, join the Discord, which is now over a thousand people, Woo-hoo. Wow. and follow us which at Panel underscore. It's incredible. Honestly. It's awesome. I love the Discord. It's a great... And Reading Group is getting started up again this weekend. Nice. And uh, I guess actually another point of order is that starting next week and for the remainder of the year, we're going to be switching up our schedule a little bit. So instead of coming out on Mondays and Thursdays, we are going to be shifting to Tuesday and Friday until yeah. the end of the year. So Tuesday will be patron episodes. We will see you back in the patron feed next Tuesday uh, instead of Monday. Yeah, Incredibly then- Catholicly, we're making you wait one day for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the Phil Rocco promise. Um, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and then um, public episodes like this one will be Fridays instead. Yep, exactly. So that's just a heads up. That's starting next week. Just don't want anyone to think that we're a day late. And uh, to get into actually what we're going to talk about this episode, we have not actually checked in. It's been a while since we've checked in on the status of the TRIPS waiver discussion. Yeah. Um, The last time that we sat down to talk about it in earnest, I'd say just the three of us, was around May when the Biden administration had uh, just announced that they were going to back a partial waiver. Thinking back to that episode, you know, one thing Phil said was like, this is the beginning of the point where you really need to watch the United States. And that's that's sort of exactly where we're at now. A couple months later, actually, a piece of writing that Artie and I had written back then is finally out today in the new inquiry. Yeah, I think actually when we did that last episode uh, that you're referring to, we mentioned even that we had been like writing this and we stopped (laughs) and that like we had to stop midway through the draft because the Catherine Tai statement came out saying like (laughs) the U.S. will participate in text-based talks and that we do in fact support a TRIPS waiver for vaccines not for not for all the other uh 
So I guess, yeah, we're going to so, yeah, check back in. We're going to check that back in on that. So, you know, but we haven't talked about the current status of the TRIPS waiver in a while. And it's, I think, a really good time to check in, especially with what has not happened since early May when the Biden administration announced their partial support for this partial waiver. Because <laughs> I, there hasn't been a, there is no TRIPS waiver, which right. which yeah. I think even surprised, you know, I was like watching some people talking about this kind of like early summer, late spring after the tie announcement. And I think there was a, there was like a quasi consensus that like, yeah, this is going to be, you know, uh, a, a very like messy process and it's going to be slow. But I think there was some sort of, I think crude consensus that like by the end of summer, things would look like they were firming up if they, if they right. hadn't already been decided. And, uh, this is not true. Um, <laughs> right. we are nowhere well, near, uh, this well and if you and if you follow uh business press you would think that the biden administration like unilaterally declared property rights not to be real anymore or something because, <laughs> oh yeah like like the wall street journal like immediately printed an article uh titled i believe it was called biden's patent theft yeah right which is just you know it's like hilarious to consider because i think it's really important i think to keep coming back to the trips waiver and the conversation that was uh that should be happening about it and about the sort of ongoing um, vaccine apartheid in particular because as we talked about when this initial announcement was made by Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative, this announcement, the announcement itself that the Biden administration was going to quote unquote, you know, support a uh, partial trips waiver. Uh, I think what, what was the word like a limited trips waiver mm-hmm. or something, which is just you know. <sighs> Classic Biden. Cla- classic, classic everything classic, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, skinny trips waiver. Yes, exactly. Skinny. <laughs> that's the word I was looking for. The the best what thing. What about we, a flexible trips waiver? Right. You know, because everyone would accept you know skinny reparations or like skinny uh, skinny police abolition. Or skinny, <laughs> skinny, skinny Medicare New for Deal. All. What about what if we do skinny Medicare for all? It's uh, it's uh, single payer health care just for vaccinated people. <laughs> Listen, like, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels so oh i want God. my skinny policies now <laughs> um but the so the i think what we talked about in the first place was like one of the things that that announcement allowed uh for allowed to happen was you get this like you get this kind of like big pr win basically for the administration right where they say you know we're standing behind the trips waiver what that means is unclear we're free to sort of slow walk it as it appears to very clearly appears to have been happening for the last few months um and it does, I think, really tamp down pressure because in like a social reproductive sense, people like assume like you see all the time like, oh, well, but Biden supports the trips waiver or whatever, which right. is like you can have the little, uh, you know, like decal or whatever, or you can have the little like, you know, thing written, written down like, oh, I support this on paper or whatever. But it doesn't like really mean anything unless you're actually taking action to push towards the the agenda that the like these people are we're suggesting in the first place. Right. Well, I mean, this is sort of why I I find this conversation like an important one to have, because like institutions like the WTO, you can really see how they're like a neoliberals wet dream in the sense (laughs) that uh, they are so remote from mass politics. They're so uh, as venues. So like distended from the way that people normally understand the consequences of these decisions that um, it's not surprising to me that there's not like, uh, gee, a lot of like domestic chatter about uh, what's going on with this. 
also not surprising to me that there's not like a domestic audience for a more aggressive U.S. position on it. Right. Um, and, and not surprising to me that, I mean, my own subjective experience in looking at any of this is just like I want to I, I fucking like close the browser tab because <laughs> I am just like I I mean, already domestic politics feels um you know, not only difficult to like analyze, but difficult to like have any meaningful, mm-hmm. um, you know, idea of what you would do as a, as an individual or even in any sort of organization to, to influence. But uh, this is like takes that to the next level. But I think that there is like a domestic political economy of trips and of international um, uh, patent protection. But it's it's kind of difficult to see. And I think that like actually looking at What's going on in on the European side kind of illustrates that nicely. Yeah, absolutely. And as soon as the Biden administration um, came out with their revised position, what you saw is the sort of jockey and go on where like Germany went into the position of like obstructor in chief. Right. Mm-hmm. And virtually little has changed because of the U.S.'s declared support because you know, a crucial thing behind um, saying what you're going to do publicly is then to one, do it and to two, <laughs> use your influence to get it done. But neither of those things are um, interests or goals of the Biden administration. Right. So you've really had the the EU and um, Germany step up to sort of keep the obstruction going. But also what you've seen is this uh, enormous shift in the messaging campaign towards focusing on every time they're talking about vaccination, they're talking about how many doses they've donated to COVAX, you know, and it's this constant sort of reinforcing of this relationship that we've talked about over and over again, which is the idea that like, you know, we're not um, entitled to health, particularly poor countries and countries in the global South, people who live in those countries are not entitled to health and the way these systems are set up. And, you know, health is framed not as this intrinsic quality, right? But like, as a uh, as the result of charity, which is bestowed <laughs> right. upon poor countries by rich countries. And that is how, you know, the messaging of the vaccine and and what the status of vaccine apartheid actually is has proceeded since May has been this focus on charity models. Right. Which is fucked up because it's precisely the opposite in most cases. I mean, the reason like, let's say let's take what you were saying. uh, We've been mentioning with like Phil mentioned the European context and and, uh, B mentioned Germany specifically, for example, like what is the reason fundamentally that Germany is now kind of like taking on the role of main obstructor in, you know, WTO trips negotiations uh, over this. We're like, even not in negotiations because negotiations suggests a very specific thing that's happening, <laughs> you know, in, uh, in slow walking the like meetings even that happen uh, towards this. And in uh, you know, very clearly sending a message that they do not support this. You know, one of the reasons very clearly is, um, BioNTech, which is the company that partnered with Pfizer, like BioNTech is a German company. Uh, they also, BioNTech received, um, I think it's, what was it, like 500 million euros, uh, which is, you know, I, I think a drop in the bucket for companies like this, sort of, but is still, you know, a very significant amount of uh, sort of state investment towards uh, what became like the Pfizer vaccine. What is it, Comirnaty? Comirnaty, yeah. Cool. Uh, oh, no, Comirnaty. Sorry. Comirnaty. It's spelled Comirnaty, Comirnaty, but it's Comirnaty. Yeah. Um, I was trying to come up with um, titles for this uh, episode recently because I knew we were going to plan it. And the like the absolute worst one I could think of was Comirnaty Domacy, um, <laughs> which is not going to be the title. But, um, 
So, you know, like countries like Germany, they know that BioNTech, this company that is uh, that was sort of an mRNA startup partnered with Pfizer to make this, you know, to make this vaccine that is rolling out globally is one of the main uh, one of the main with the Moderna shot, the main one of the main vaccines targeted against uh, COVID that's going to be rolled out globally. So they have a significant interest in making sure that something like BioNTech could become, you know, yet another pharmaceutical enterprise uh, within it that can, you know, scale up. Etc. It's not, you know, it's like these these things. It's not like even a. It's so difficult to talk about these things sometimes because you, you can you, you can just imagine you can see like Russell Brand or something sitting there with like his printouts of like. <laughs> Of like you know this this website says that this study this like bullshit preprint from Med Archive or something says that like green tea cures cancer or, or something, and that like the reason that the state is withholding it is because like they can profit off of it or whatever, and that's like not that's like the the weird conspiracy theory hat version of it, but it's like much more simple than that basically i mean the states thrive on like property and capital and one of the ways that they've done that internationally and like expanding the sort of like ever evolving role of colonialism since it never went away has been through expanding their property regime through intellectual property through the right to uh control like where pharmaceutical production happens Right. right. And absolutely part of Pfizer's whole story, right, is that CEO Albert Borla has been a really uh, key voice in sort of creating the narrative of this mythology that Pfizer is the only company to sort of do the COVID vaccine development process independently. He said in the hilarious sort of SpawnCon documentary that he put out how Pfizer's innovation was specifically driven by a discreet decision that Borla made to free his scientists from the constraints of government oh, yeah. funding and the right. limitations and the bureaucracy. And he's this renegade innovator, you know, CEO who is practicing foreign affairs, negotiating with the government of Israel, acting like a head of state himself, you know, asserting this whole thing of like, you know, and we didn't need the state. And actually, the, even if it's a tiny little bit of funding funding that came from the German government into BioNTech, like that is the one hole in the story that is so incredibly obvious that even with Borla basically trying to downplay it and never acknowledge it or even talk about it or answer questions about it in press conferences like you know this is that's that's a fact that has not gone away because it's so obvious but germany's resistance to any sort of negotiation on trips is key because they're kind of holding that that they're the gatekeepers of the pharma story right now for pfizer yeah and i mean like obviously the it's, it's really important for Pfizer to like maintain the the narrative that like you can only do um, you could only combat covid and and produce a vaccine like they did uh, with the current IP regime that in the absence <laughs> right. of that, like that's the linchpin of their argument. Then in yeah. the absence of that regime, you wouldn't see that now. Pay no attention, of course, to the Hungarian researcher behind the door uh, who invented like the mRNA platform <laughs> who didn't receive any funding from pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, who are like fighting to pre- like protect the IP. But um, but I think that's it's an important thing. Like, you know, we began with sort of asking like a question about the way that these countries like perceive uh, health or like the 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 
sort of worthy, the moral worthiness of countries in the global south that, that don't have access to, to vaccines. Like, I guess my my broad takeaway from from like looking at what's happening at the WTO is like if you want to have a conversation about health, the exist the like the mere existence of trips as a venue in which that conversation might play out is the problem. Right. right? Um, this is it, it's like significant. And, and it's, you know, I don't even know that one has to speculate about what Germany uh, how how German um, ministers of state uh, or members of the European Commission, which, by the way, interestingly enough, you know, the European Parliament has has signed off on the waiver. Right. Um, the EU hasn't because of Germany's influence on the European Commission. Yep. And like to what can you attribute that? I mean, nothing really more than the fabulous success of BioNTech uh, and other uh, German uh, pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers like it's it's simply that it's the state uh, acting uh, purely in the interest of, of some of its largest and most profitable uh, firms, which, you know, again, this is a, a classic sort of market as prison uh, kind of scenario in which the investment function held by these firms is the problem. It's the fact that the state re- relies on them for uh, a lot of what goes into sort of economic um, the sort of the economic lifeblood of, of of the country, right? So the fact that we're dealing with uh, this issue in in the realm of the WTO, um, and the, the fact that this venue exists, uh, means that that relationship is is even more meaningful than it is in German domestic politics, right? It it it, it sort of amplifies uh, the the importance of that relationship, right? Right. Well, also just to, I mean, to underline how fundamentally undemocratic this whole process is in the first place, part of it is that like it only really takes one to totally hold up all of this stuff. Like right. we don't know what the whole situation is. Like I'm not even, I want to be very clear, I'm not speculating that this happened, but I'm just saying that like specifically, for example, let's say that um, at, at the time when like Catherine time made the U S trade representative made the uh, a statement about uh, the trips waiver and the Biden administration that like they had been just feeling like they were, you know, the biggest country who was clearly like in, in um, under like some of the most crosshairs from having been, you know, one of few mostly imperialist countries who like uh, pre-ordered the most vaccines and were, you know, and ever, everyone could see even before, like literally even before the vaccines, any of them were even provisionally <laughs> approved. People could see the vaccine apartheid coming because this is how this right. is set up to happen. You know, so basically if early on, uh, for example, it, if it was the case, like, I don't necessarily even think that this is the case, but if it was the case that, uh, that like the U S was feeling the most profound domestic pressure, right. To like act on the vaccine apartheid situation or the U S or the Biden administration, for instance, was like among these other, let's say like G seven, uh, countries or whatever, other like wealthy nations that are the main, uh, power players and basically like stakeholders within, um, WTO, you know, being these nations that like house primarily so many of these multinational corporations that, you know, make up the pharmaceutical industries and other health industries and stuff like that. Like you could, you know, one could imagine that basically all it would take is like, okay, so which one of us is going to take the fall for this? Basically right. everyone else can, you know, uh, get, get like a little bump, uh, or whatever. I'm not, again, I'm not saying this, like it starts to like verge on conspiracy, but it really is just like this, um, no, no, it's this, this is very this is, simple. This is, like, go ahead. It's how super majoritarian institutions work, even if they right. had not planned it that way. I mean, the fact that Germany is going to is is predisposed to be highly receptive to the preferences of 
a, an industry that is very important in the domestic economy. Right. Um, it, I mean, that is, I mean, that, that like when you have a super majoritarian or essentially <laughs> an institution that requires consensus, like 100% agreement, unanimity uh, to make decisions, like one person can hold it up. I mean, that's exactly what's going to happen. This was, TRIPS was designed to make this happen. Right. right. And designed to alleviate pressure in countries that, you know, where the pressure builds up, it doesn't necessarily undermine the property protections, right? Because if the pressure builds up in the United States, then the United States rolling back their support certainly like lessens that firewall but it doesn't right. eliminate it all you need is like one country to stand in the way and and every pharmaceutical company get what they want right which sounds crazy but that is actually just how this was designed to work well, actually and, and that's why i say like you know it's 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 not conspiracy it's just having this organization set up in this way allows there to be sort of this like delegation of you know on a, on a national level a national politician can say like Oh, you know, we, yeah, we support it or we support it in theory, but you know what? It's like really difficult to, to, uh, work with all of these other constituent nations to, uh, make it work. Meanwhile, just to, uh, really, really briefly touch on the stuff that, um, you guys are saying about like the structure of the organization. I think it's really important to remember, and this gets left off. I think this is like the main thing that for me just drives me insane that is constantly left out of the context of how to understand trips when it is repeated in like whether it's in media or in just a lot of political commentary in general it's mm-hmm. like people kind of treat it like the trips council is this stayed institution that has been there or the wto even has been like the state institution that's been there for um very like forever uh like this i mean actually it's very similar in that way to the role that we talked about uh in some way about like the supreme court on on monday in the patron episode it's just it's like this thing that uh that holds this wild uh unelected power function that does you know does not in any way like earn its mandate but also that just is it's like accepted as though just it's like a totally natural institution or something like it's a fact of nature uh is is how people talk about these institutions sometimes but basically like the the trips council itself the trips agreement um the reason that the trips agreement uh came together in the first place was specifically and we we talked about this in an episode with um Alex Zaychik um a, a while ago but uh you know basically this institution like the the trips agreement itself comes out of explicit lobbying by a group in the uh 80s and 90s which was called the Intellectual Property Committee and the <laughs> idea was and actually it was led principally by Edmund Pratt, who was then the CEO of Pfizer. Um, so this, this doesn't go far, basically. Uh, you know, it's like the same, it's a lot of the same actors involved still. Um, this was led by, uh, so the intellectual property committee was led by in, in part Edmund Pratt, the CEO of Pfizer, John Opel, uh, the CEO of IBM and a couple, uh, of, you know, other, uh, industrialists basically who they kind of corralled together into this weird, like bunch basically of a bunch of different industries who then the, like the idea was uh, what they lobbied for and what they ultimately succeeded in getting was specifically the idea that uh, so like pr- prior to the trips waiver, um, you know, if, if there was an in- international intellectual property dispute of some kind, there wasn't like a lot that you could do about it unless there were, uh, unless there were like really strict intellectual property laws already in place um, in, you know, whatever country, uh, whatever state that you were, uh, you know, trying to 
protect your IP in. Um, this is mostly for companies headquartered in, you know, really wealthy nations and imperialist nations, basically. But the idea was uh, what they lobbied for and what they ultimately got. The idea was that they would tie intellectual property concerns, intellectual property disputes to existing trade mechanisms uh, Mm -hmm. because the trade regime and what was being worked out through like the World Trade Organization, the the trade regime had basically already um, systems set up to like disciplinary systems set up for nations that uh, that, you know, violated trade agreements. So they basically lobbied the U.S. government and other um, governments to go to these negotiations for what became the TRIPS agreement and other things that, you know, they, they basically got the state to act on their behalf to say, okay, very simple thing. What we're going to do is we're going to tie intellectual property concerns, stuff like the patent rights for vaccines um, or other therapeutics. We're going to tie intellectual property rights to the existing trade regime. That's why it's the trade related aspects of international intellectual property rights agreement. So in tying basically intellectual property concerns to this um, trade regime uh, that was already set up to be able to do stuff like set sanctions against countries for violating trade agreements or a number of other things, basically, you know, to, to threaten to, to take as violent of coercive measures as are allowable currently, essentially, by imperialist nations against other nations uh, under international law, you essentially now had, as of, the, as of the TRIPS agreement being put together, the U.S. and major like, European powers and anyone with kind of like imperialist concerns able to act as like able to literally be like states acting as like the cop on the beat for fucking a state like um, India, for example, um, you know, making manufacturing pharmaceuticals without respect to like patent rights. Right. Not just like international patent rights, but also like basically mandating for member nations who signed on to make sure that by I think it was something like 2006 or so. uh, But at least to to make sure within a period of something like uh, I think 10 or 15 years following their uh, signing on to the TRIPS agreement, signing on to the WTO that they had to like instate patent rights and uh, intellectual property rights kind of commensurate with this intellectual property regime based on basically the like highly restrictive um, American system. Right. Right. I mean, what the CHIPS framework really did was it streamlined the process of enforcing intellectual property on a global scale by creating like participation in this like forced uh, intentional conflation of like trade and and pharmaceutical IP or intellectual property in general, and like taking this readily understandable like commodified form of trade, right? Like the the trade of like the right to produce goods or uh, to replicate ideas, and making that sort of subject to this pre-existing, uh, very colonial international relations framework, right? It also made it easier for companies like Pfizer and Merck and um, Glaxo, SmithKline and who, you know, Gilead, whoever, to actually legally engage with people who are stepping on their territory or getting close to their, you know, property rights because it standardizes the laws that govern the countries that are under the TRIPS agreement. And it's ultimately been, I think, this willful process of forgetting that there's any other 
way to do politics or any other way to like uh, manage the distribution of sort of the most readily commodified form of health, which is pharmaceuticals. And and there's this kind of idea that like, well, it's too big. It's too borderless. It's too extra state. It's too powerful. And there's too much money involved to ever actually shift, displace, just, you know, destabilize um the sort of hegemonic control that pharma enjoys and the influence and the favorability in terms of like policy preferences. But I I don't think that's necessarily true because I think one of the things that becomes really clear to me is that, you know, pharma is never shy about making a disgusting argument in public. (laughs) This is something we've (laughs) talked about like a lot, you know, the idea of like, you know, the classic line of pharma to protect their property rights is like, well, innovation you know, mm-hmm. and like also like, oh, we're spending all this money. Like it's our right to make money. So it's like that's already the level of like the entry level of like gross, uh, you know, engagement with like the value of a human life that pharma is comfortable with. Right. And if you think of all of these other protections that they have spent so much money over the years on press to rebrand themselves, on lobbying, on, you know, just the construction of these images of of pharmaceutical companies as these sort of global behemoths, right? Like it's they're trying so hard to protect something because there is so little validity to their claim to it. And there is so little standing in their corner, really. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at any of the basic arguments that they make, I mean, they all fall apart in their face. Right. The the idea that like it's it's the IP regime that protects like innovation. (laughs) If that's the case, then like why was there no like therapeutic infrastructure uh, in place like uh, (laughs) a year ago, like in in, in many of these countries, like if, if if IP is not really a barrier in uh, countries like India to like uh, setting these things up, then like why has it taken uh, a- as long as it has, right? Why in a country with a lot of mm-hmm. manufacturing capacity uh, for pharmaceuticals is it as hard to get mRNA lines up um, as it has been? Like that doesn't make any sense, right? right. Um, and then that's just like one example. Um, the so uh, like the fact that the arguments are as baseless as they are, it, it illustrates they, they don't have to be. Good. You don't have to argue well or have a coherent position when you have a lot of power. Like the the basic, even just like the basic relationship, like should like what is the relationship between the existence of this, not only the intellectual property regime in the United States, but the exporting of that regime around the world? What does one even expect the effect of that on the availability and like affordability of prescription uh, drugs uh, to be like, it's, it's a really, really basic sort of relationship. The issue is that the way that it's discussed, especially um, that with the design of trips, it means that like in order to really have agency uh, over it, like at, at the mass level or in order to have like democratic control, you have to be able to coordinate political action in countries where the tangible benefits of eliminating um, this agreement or, 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 you know, creating waivers at minimum are going to be like the least salient or like the, the least visible, um, or the most attenuated or the more that, it, you know, in countries or places where, where it's going to seem like this is just a kind of remote elite form of, uh, international development type politics. <laughs> um, and the fact is it's not trips doesn't 
really benefit uh, the domestic political economies of the countries where uh, pharmaceutical companies like reign supreme. It does benefit those pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean, this is why I think like the problem is can, can get like a little bit out of hand. Right. But I think it takes, and you know, not, not that I've done it yet or that, that we've done it yet, but like there are connections to be made between what's going on domestically and how trips is like fucking over, um, a, a, a huge slice of the world, not only in vaccines, but all kinds of other therapeutics as well. Um, but like that is a rhetorical argument that, that has to be made. And it, I guess it sort of stands to reason that it's difficult because of the absence of any sort of like real left internationalism. Um, yeah. uh, and, and that sort of perspective, uh, certainly within the United States anyway. Uh, but I mean, I think that's one of the, the sort of barriers that, that, uh, dealing dealing with this sort of r- running up into well yeah and I think that's really important because um, for you know for example if you think about let's think okay think about like the United States right um, the uh, you, you mentioned like left movements in the United States think about the Medicare for all movement like okay the Medicare for all movement is explicitly the part of the sign off for this show is med- is like Medicare for all now solidarity forever right like you know we're 100,000 percent behind Medicare for all in the United States the even the most expansive versions of it, Still, though, you know, when, when we say that what, on the show and when, when we talk about um, health justice or health communism, et cetera, like what we mean is expansive even beyond, uh, I think, what is being proposed. But a lot of even the sort of most expansive sort of mainstream proposals, for instance, uh, for Medicare for all, that's about what is called health finance, for example, um, which is, you know, more a question of like who pays. Right. So let's say we've set up like a, a national do universal national health insurance, which is essentially uh, Medicare for all. Let's say we even make it really expansive. It covers a whole bunch of things. No one has to pay for anything. Okay. How are you going to just leave pharmaceutical companies just around? Right. You know, like waiting to waiting to gouge. Right. I mean, look at the NHS. Right. I mean, the NHS is no fucking panacea. You know, we have we have no illusions about that. However, on on top of it, it's like, you know, for a national health system, for example, when you think about things just on a national, only on a national level, for example, you end up with this uh, problem if you're allowing international pharmaceutical companies to continue to be these capitalist enterprises at all to allow this thing, which as we've just been talking about is so fundamental to health, public health, population health, global health, all of these things, when you allow that stuff to be, uh, you know, commodified and subject to um, capitalist enterprise, controlled and restricted in how it is, not only like how it is uh, like developed, because that's, you know, I think that like get, it gets people down, uh, down like just the, the really easy route rabbit holes, but how it's just, how it's distributed, right? right. Like who, uh, like what nations end up getting, this is what the subject of the vaccine apartheid argument really is like what nations are able to even like get these vaccines, how absurd is it, for example, that um, actually, as we talked about in the in the piece that B and I wrote for new, the new inquiry, we can have all these conversations all we want about, uh, well, well, so, you know, you can challenge Moderna's uh, patent because it, it appears that while they while they do not want to volunteer the information, it seems like the NIH also owns a patent to Moderna's vaccine, but you can't challenge Pfizer's vaccine because Pfizer paid for it out of pocket. Yeah, they got 500 million euros from uh, Germany through BioNTech, but that doesn't count. Uh, it's, you know, the, Pfizer is a much bigger entity here. Like you can't uh, challenge their vaccines, intellectual property rights. I mean, bullshit. 
in the first place, but also because like who's buying the vaccine, like states are buying the vaccine. We're not talking about something where it's like, uh, I mean, obviously I think that all intellectual property rights, um, specifically for pharmaceuticals should be null and void, but I'm just saying that like, in terms of like Pfizer's, uh, and, and other, uh, you know, vaccine makers, this is a global pandemic. There is international need for this, for the like purposes of global public health, for saving like so many lives and the principal buyers are states. No, like no one, like for the most part, you know, I'm sure like, you know, 99% or something of these are being bought by states to give to their people. There is no reason that this should be in the hands of a private company. It just doesn't, it's like it, it's absurd. Well, and the thing too, that I, I think is just really, uh, to sort of like underline what you're saying already, but also tie it back into Phil's idea of there need to be connections drawn between domestic policy and the more like incomprehensible scale that pharma likes to assert its operative level is at, right? Because that's really what it is, is sort of like, you know, in keeping themselves in this superstructural arena where they kind of can't be touched, um, you know, it discourages people from coming after them. It discourages people from organizing against them because there is the implication that like they are too big to fail. They are too big to fall. They are too big to breach and too powerful to have any control over. But, you know, what goes on domestically within the countries that like are subject to pharma, which is all of them, obviously has a relation on um, pharma success, but particularly in the countries that it is selling its vaccine to, right? And I think the most clear example of that is in the the piece already, and I talk about this uh, statement that Jacqueline Miller from Moderna made in December of 2020 in an interview in Nature where she told nature that Moderna had really benefited from the way the United States was handling <laughs> COVID and the fact actually that the U.S. was handling COVID so poorly that in the winter, the spread was so fast, right? And in the fall, the spread was so fast that actually, you know, that sort of being the dominant policy response and the way that that decision making was then reflected in other countries like the UK and in parts of Europe and across, you know, really just kind of across the board here, right? Like people followed the example of, you know, prioritizing the economy over uh, infection reproduction, right? And what that resulted in was a windfall of accelerated testing for the companies that were selling the vaccine to the states in the first place, right? Because if you have more natural infection going on, you have more opportunities to test the vaccine. If the U.S. had said, okay, we're going to go on a full-on paid shutdown, we're going to get to, you know, R0, and we're going to just bring the, you know, rate of reproduction down as far as we can go, get to COVID, you know, pull like essentially like what uh, New Zealand has done, right? Right. Um, see cases, try and eliminate and contain them. Instead, we have taken exactly the opposite approach. If we had taken the strategy of New Zealand, you know, what would have happened? Would Moderna have gotten their data as quickly? Would these have been the sort of silver bullet blockbusters? I don't know if we would have been able to do it as quickly if the domestic policy response wasn't so bad. And the fact that that's even a question, right? The fact that there's even a question that, you know, domestic response to a global pandemic could, uh, you know, improve the, the chances down the end of the product line, of a pharmaceutical, like intellectual property is absolutely just 
you know, obscene, right? And it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't have to be this way. It's not like God given by nature that this is how pharmaceuticals are made. Like we do not need Albert Borla to like continue to do this stuff, but this is how it's set up and, and it sort of exists in this register where it can't be touched. It can't be challenged. It's too big. Right. And I, I mean, I think there's a very w- simple way of, of thinking about this, which is that how long do you want the pandemic to go on? Right. Okay. I think most people would say not very much longer, right? Clearly, no, you know, nobody wants this. Um, yeah. uh, at least no normal, uh, <laughs> regular human being uh, wants this. But okay. So then you look at the percentage of the population in quote unquote high income countries, like i.e. the countries that had the purchasing power to like get the vaccine, um, the countries that are supporting trips and opposing the waiver, um, over 50% of the population of those countries is vaccinated. Yeah. Then you look at the countries that are on the, sh- you know, uh, bad end of the trip stick and uh, less than 2% of their population uh, is vaccinated. And that's a significant chunk of the world's total population. Okay. Yeah. So as, as long as trips remains in place and we can get into the counter arguments, like what this, this, the stupid sort of like half measures, not even half measures, like vaporware <laughs> that, uh, pharmaceutical companies and, and the States that love them are, uh, proposing, uh, in a second. But as long as that relation remains, uh, and as, as long as it remains difficult for uh, these countries to, like stand up manufacturing capacity, which sure as shit, uh, as long as these patent regimes remain in place will be the case, the longer the pandemic goes on, uh, the more variants you get and the more and, and it might happen slowly. It might happen sporadically. You might not see the connection. It might appear stochastically or as if randomly yeah. uh, in your life, but it will continue to fuck up your life, right? <laughs> you might not be able to like see the relation in a one-to-one way. It might not be as plain as like, you know, um, uh, you know, the sort of like snidely whiplash uh, character <laughs> with like the, the, the mustache and like, you know, the sack of money. Uh, <laughs> tying somebody to the railroad tracks, but like stochastically, that is what will be happening as long as this trade regime remains in place. Um, and I think that like it's very, very easy to hide that uh, because of the way that trips is set up. But but like make no mistake, um, that is as domestically important a policy as anything else. Um, yeah. And it is clear. Adam Tews had this like piece today that I thought was really good. He's like. What did you think like the domestic and international institutions were doing with respect to COVID? Like despite the fact that these institutions are created like in the post-war period with all of these this sort of like, you know, almost like Athenian ancient like rhetoric about like democracy, like international peace, like um, the function of them in the pandemic has not been to like create context for like cooperation uh if anything it's created the context for like the hoarding of wealth absolutely um, yeah and and like what has really the the function of the domestic response by uh, american institutions been they didn't like the, the fed the fed's policies haven't been about um like making it possible to do lockdowns obviously if they were I don't know, maybe 600,000 plus people wouldn't have died. Um, They've been about uh, protecting the, uh, you know, the buoyancy of markets in the midst of like a once in a generation um, crisis of capitalism. So like, I just think that um, 
it's again, all of this sounds like weighty, uh, sort of remote institutional, um, politics and like statecraft, but it all at the end of the day has this like effect in our lives as, as imperceptible as it might be. It is a thumb on the scale in favor of, uh, just a little drop more drops of chaos, which of course, then we just like, it plays out in the context of like school board politics or just like hating your friends and neighbors, hating yeah. your family members. Like we're, you know, ultimately just become self-loathing at some point, but make no mistake about like who the enemy is here. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is, uh, I'm glad that you brought up these points because one, this is exactly why I think um, so many of the like pandemic people are so fun. Obviously we've been making fun of them for a long time over the course of the pandemic. I but, mean, like, how could you not? They're so funny. The, but like regarding the, like what exactly do you think international institutions are doing? The funniest thing about like pandemic, um, which I don't think we even talked about when we have talked about it, but like the, the idea that like, Oh, check this out. Like, you know, you have um, this guy, um, filmmaker and father Mickey Willits uh, saying like, uh, here, check out these, um, look at these, uh, council meetings or whatever, these international meetings of, uh, public health people saying like, uh, you know, from before the pandemic started saying like, we have to, we have to prepare because there's always the possibility that could be a viral outbreak. We have to do this and that and the other thing. Uh, and like, look, this, this is exactly what they're doing. The funniest thing about that whole thing is the stuff that was being planned for is absolutely not what they're being, uh, what they have been doing, what those meetings ended up doing uh, for, you know, for, for by and large over the, like the last decade or so, those meetings have existed to basically have uh, like a bunch of handshake agreements among international agencies saying that if something exactly like COVID happened, that they would work together to like, you know, pool resources, IP, all of this stuff to, uh, you know, figure out how to like control an incident like this to control like a thing to keep it from becoming as tragic as this has obviously become. And instead of that happening, the moment that COVID began, instead of being like, okay, now's the time we made those, we made all those agreements. We're like, not gonna, you know, we're, we're not gonna fight with each other or whatever. Instead, it was just like, no, uh, we're going to do, we're going to pursue all these like, uh, entirely nationalist state responses. Um, it's basically everyone for themselves. Many of us will obviously like, we'll, we'll pre-order vaccines when they become available. We'll, uh, we'll do things like operation warp speed, et cetera, to like try and, you know, cause people I think forget that operation warp speed was in part about like, it was about, you know, quote unquote, speeding the timeline of vaccines, but it was also about just specifically making sure that we had those like pre-order that we had the like vaccine pre-orders in basically of the United States. But, um, and it's resulted basically in this framework of what kind of emerged actually in, uh, early 2000, which was called health security. Um, not like the cool health security, like what Ted Kennedy proposed or whatever a really long time ago, like universal healthcare, like health security as in the securitization of, uh, health as a international crisis problem. Um, which, uh, fun fact, I guess the first, I think AIDS was the first, um, health crisis to be designated a security threat, like a, a health security, global health security threat. Um, but anyway, the other thing just to say, like, as, as B was mentioning is just to like be explicit, the story that she is telling this person from Moderna was basically saying that, you know, it's not just that the, the timetable was moved up by all of these horrible state policies that ended up in heightened transmission 
the uh, this person from Moderna said by something like five months, like explicitly said, we got our data in on this within like five months or so faster. Right. Which is amazing in terms of a accomplishment. Like, that's great. But that, you know, celebrating that as some sort of win obscures the price that we paid for those five months of acceleration. Right. You know, and that price was huge. And was it worth it? I don't think so. I don't know if it was when there were other things available that could have been done too. you know, like with the vaccine. Is it a silver bullet? Absolutely not. Is it supposed to be? No, we're using it like one anyways. And that has disastrous consequences. But it also has, you know, consequences on what role pharma will play moving forward. And one thing that I would be very curious to find out is, you know, in all of these simulations that have been run and all of these like, you know, trials and run throughs and conferences where you discuss like how to respond to a pandemic. I would be really curious if, you know, what was the durational aspect of that planning? What was the sort of plan for how long we thought that things like this would last? Because I think that above and beyond anything else, the only people who seem to have considered that are pharmaceutical companies. And in doing that, you know, that has actually been the the way that they've considered it has been in terms of their business model and in terms of how they're watching, you know, when they're going to be able to change prices. And the fact that the, the sort of only group of people who seem to be proactively trying to like anticipate and and accommodate and understand what the durational aspect of COVID is going to be is the people who are trying to figure out when it's socially, you know, acceptable to raise prices, right? Yeah. Like that is evidence of a fundamentally broken system that has relied on flawed cost-benefit analysis to justify what has been absolutely unacceptable levels of death, illness, and disability for no reason. For only the reason of like, you know, the continuation of the economy as usual. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's been an infusion of money into the pharmaceutical sector between the stock market and grants and purchase orders. And now with the uh, booster shot plan, right, which was something that Borla has been selling for months now before the vaccines were approved, he was starting to sell the idea of boosters. And yeah, the Biden administration might have come out in early May to say we support a partial trips waiver. But the Biden administration also basically announced ahead of the scientific panel that was supposed to decide whether it was a good idea or not <laughs> that the U.S. was going to go for a booster shot plan anyway. in the foot. Right. Like, so it's basically he was like, you know, it's like, yeah, you could say that, like, the U.S. stood up to pharma, but also at the same time, like, you know, we basically announced replacing another order with Pfizer. Yeah. And I think that that all gets to the point, like, you know, again, we're, we're trying to focus on not only like the trips waiver where the where that conversation is but also just i think just to advocate for like like this conversation needs to continue to be one of pressure on you know obviously not just something like the biden administration in the u.s but also onto these other states internationally that are resisting it for various reasons and i think one really important reason for that uh beyond the some of the stuff that we've talked about is actually just something that just came out this week which is I think one of the consequences, for example, of having basically control over these uh, over these vaccines or production and distribution 
um, and further development really located specifically within, you know, single pharmaceutical companies is you get stuff like this. So there is a, there was an article for instance that came out um, in stat news this week where they talked to Pfizer's quote unquote variant hunters whose job essentially is to monitor emerging variants as they get information about them internationally and to figure out uh, how to sort of like adjust the vaccine or try to make new vaccine candidates basically for variants that emerge that might be vaccine resistant. Right. And in that article, you see, uh, for example, Phil Dormitzer, who is the chief science officer, scientific officer for viral vaccines um, at Pfizer, saying of this, saying of the vaccines, quote, this is also a product. And so it is also responding to customers. The main customers are governments. What do they want to see as well? And this follows directly from um, a statement that they made basically saying that the countries buying the vaccines also influence the choice of variants to study. So basically when you have, for example, as you know, Phil was mentioning earlier, as upheld by this, uh, property regime, these, uh, these, you know, quote unquote wealthier nations or whatever, uh, having, you know, more than something like 50% or so of their populations, uh, vaccinated. And a lot of these other nations just left to fucking die with, you know, currently like 2% or less, um, of their populations vaccinated. This essentially suggests that for variants that are emerging, you have companies like Pfizer literally focusing their efforts of R and D towards emerging variants on like in variants that are known to be circulating in these countries that are already their customers. Like that is a huge problem. That is not, this should not be a priority. Like that should not be the priority. Right. right. And just to give like a scale of what sort of what the market size is. Right. Uh, there's a ge- great Geneva Health Files series of articles, actually, about trips. And in one of them, they break down the changes in Germany's like uh, GDP and in terms of how much money the biotech sector is bringing in. And in 2019, they quote their ent- Germany's entire biotechnology industry earned 4.87 billion euros. And just this year alone, just BioNTech is on track. Uh, their estimated revenues are 15.9 billion. And uh, the article says that Germany's economy is predicted to grow 4% this year with 0.5 attributed 0.5 attributable to BioNTech alone. So like scale wise, you know, obviously these companies have a lot to gain from tailoring their uh, their products to their intended market, which are specifically, you know, like the, the colonial powers left over, like the, the markets they always target. Right. I mean, so that makes a, it makes things like this seem a little hollow. Um, again, not that we're in a realm where argument matters at all. But let's just let's just go through it, huh? Shall we? Like, because it might be fun. Uh, like the it makes the that very fact be makes when you hear somebody like Gerd Müller from the uh, the German Development Ministry um, in an interview with Zeit says that you know we don't really need trips, and in fact that's 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 <laughs> you're sort of missing the point. He says that a patent release does not mean that we can quickly eliminate the shortage of vaccines for developing countries. Rather, uh, we need to rapidly expand production on the basis of licenses granted by pharmaceutical companies to qualified mm. production facilities. Uh, this is different 
from controlled uncontrolled patent release. Um, he's like, this is what we need. We need like vo- like voluntary uh, licensing and like tech transfer. And that's like what you hear from like not one, but like multiple uh, representatives of uh, German government now. Um, so let's let's like actually talk about what voluntary licensure and like tech transfer would look like, because if that were the case, if, if these pharmaceutical companies or these countries were like really eager to uh, to do that, and if that were the thing like uh, holding back manufacturing, like maybe they would have invested in the the WHO's like CTAP effort, uh, which is um, the technology access pool for, for COVID-19. Right. But they haven't. Right. And this like this huge like mechanism for like uh, tech transfer, uh, they've essentially like completely uh, ignored and said, no, actually, what they need is like a weaker uh, version of that, which is like (laughs) COVAX, um, which is like what what the U.S. and and other countries like uh, supported. And even that they they really haven't like uh, contributed to. So, like, here's the thing. There are any number of like uh, very easy to spin out. uh, like alternatives uh, to actually just uh, giving these countries the like patent protections that enable like would enable an industry to like develop, especially like the whole idea that like it's just the absence of like manufacturing capacity that's the problem and uh, it's it has nothing to do with patents. Like all of that is just belied by looking for a second at India. Um, right. Like there's just like any like it, it's it's embarrassing that they continue to make this argument because it's really, really easy to refute. But, uh, you know, most of the people who are asking them questions about it are like international business press. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that's they're really getting like the hard <laughs> questions, but it's just like it's an embarrassing uh, argument uh, to make. No, absolutely. And to be honest, I mean, this is. I think it's it's disappointing because it, you you really see a lack of focus and attention on this and I think I think that what happened was exactly what we were worried about happening which was that the US announced um a shift in their position which unleashed this sort of flood of people going like okay great it's fixed and I don't right. I don't think that there's really been focused attention on what's happened since that announcement and obviously you know the context in a lot of countries right now um, particularly the ones where you would want that pressure to be coming from right like in Germany in particular <laughs> for example like you know Germany right now it, like the, the the news is really focused on very different debates and like the media is talking about like well what are we going to do about schools? And they're having conversations about, do we blame the unvaccinated? And do we need to start doing these more moralistic surveillance protocols where we're, you know, discouraging people from doing the bad behaviors that are spreading, you know, and it's like all of that noise and all of that energy is sucked away, right? And there's no focus on, you know, what is happening outside of the sort of immediate borders of this country? And like, what is pharma doing right now? Because the, the only sort of global scale um, real, I think, moment for solidarity in my mind is actually in in trying to find ways to unite across borders to come for pharma. Because that ultimately, you know, as Artie was saying earlier, imagine what the NHS could be like, right? 
if there was a, a global coalition to leverage um, some sort of pressure on pharma, if you had more single payer systems, right, could you bring together like coalitions of of groups of patients and patient groups and activist groups across countries to put this pressure on, right? Because you have some sort of leverage through the payer system. But when the United States has these sort of fractured, awful, privatized mess that we have, right? There's there's zero infrastructure for sort of building that here. And it, what instead is sort of the default response is like, well, how do we try and get, uh, you know, these companies to play ball ethically? And how can we get them to like, you know, follow the letter of the law and the sort of intent that we think the law should have, but is not there textually? How do we get them to be responsible about their pricing and their patents? And, you know, we're so committed to this idea that we do not own the drugs that we put in our bodies and that we do not have any right or claim to to the drugs themselves. Right. And And I think it's a really important like conceptual framework to consider is like really just sort of where uh where we are at in terms of like how we relate to the ownership of like a lot of different things but especially especially pharmaceuticals yeah i mean and this this goes back to what we said at the beginning which is like what the Biden administration did in may was like their optimal response strategy yeah there was an audience for paying attention to what was happening with the trips waiver but it was like wafer thin uh, yeah. The level of like attention and commitment was way for thin uh, because of the structure of trips. You know that essentially what you say to, you know, uh, the American press uh, and and even publicly like to to the trips council is essentially meaningless because it's a consensus based institution. Um, uh, as, as soon as you say it, essentially, the words are worthless um, and people will stop paying attention. And then, you know, in the absence of this other audience that, you know, again, maybe it would exist if there was a, a more robust like health justice kind of like movement in the United States uh, or better uh, institutions. I think that's entirely possible if if the consequences of uh, trips were like more more visible. Um, that doesn't exist. So it's not. Uh, but the pharmaceutical companies can say whatever they want to say. Germany and its development ministers can say whatever they want to say about voluntary licensing. But at the end of the day, either more of the world will get vaccinated or it won't. And the yeah. pandemic will continue or it right. won't. And when it does uh, continue, the question will be, who should we look to to blame? And I would opt not for the Atlantic magazine strategy of like <laughs> blaming uh, the people who, you know, happen to, uh, you know, live around us and, and we find unpleasant. Although, you know, certainly I, I have nothing but, uh, you know, loathing in my heart for like the, you know, Wisconsin, like Cardinal uh, who like is like telling his flock uh, to, you know, not get vaccinated because like Pikachu and the Tiki torch you got at Epcot Center, it's the devil, um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, nevertheless, yeah, that's a villain. But yeah. so, too, uh, are these companies which out out in the shadows, uh, out of outside of the wide readership here are um, keeping so many millions of people uh, unvaccinated uh, simply uh, to boost their profit margins. Uh, they're right. equally, if not far more culpable uh, for the sort of the global devastation that we're, we will uh, make no mistake, continue to see uh, in a lot of the world uh, for the next few years. Yeah. I mean, absolutely far more culpable. 
That's why I think I would add to just to be, you know, really explicit to add to what you're saying, but also explicitly what um, B was saying, you know, imagine not merely like having you know, when I when I raise stuff like the the NHS or like Medicare for all, for example, I don't mean that in terms of, you know, what if we had institutions that uh, could have leverage on these things? I also just mean, what if these companies were just not allowed to exist at all? You know, one can imagine a internationalist, solidaristic vision for the research and development of fucking drugs, fucking, you know, stuff that is broadly universally applicable to human bodies throughout the entire fucking world, you know, and should absolutely not be the privileged purview of a couple of companies backed by state power and uh, and enforced by persistent threat. Right. And I think, again, you know, just to which we talked about at the beginning of the episode, but just to say again, like uh, part of the whole framework of the of the way that we engage with pharmaceutical property right now and the way that we've been trained and taught and forced to engage with it reinforces this idea of like health being a privilege or a object of charity. And like ultimately, like there are relations and ways of legislating and doing policy and doing pay fors with health and doing pharmaceutical research and development. There are so many other ways to do this stuff. And the way that we do it now is not uh, intrinsic to the doing of it, right? Like pharmaceutical companies do not need to exist for pharmaceuticals to be developed. And that seems like a silly and simple thing to say, but actually the message, the silly simple message that they have been selling for 70 years is that pharmaceuticals cannot exist without pharmaceutical companies. Well, also it's very important to say those things because otherwise it is just not on it's otherwise it's one not on the table and two you know even if people assume that that is the case you're also assuming that like given the options of like the what what you're constantly told when reinforced are like the finite barriers of what is possible i mean think about think about how much political discourse is just fundamentally about setting barriers about what is possible i mean phil you know you like this is something that you study a lot um and you know, I think I think spoken and, and written in the past like very eloquently on and and talked about is this like uh, idea of policy craft. But still, you know, the, like this limitation of the possible is like very important to break through. And in some ways, breaking through just that like understanding of what is possible should be at the very least, you know, the easy part because the hard part is doing it. But the easy part is like breaking it through, I think, like those limitations of what right, is possible. Actually, yeah. Well, and I mean, I think we'll leave it there for today. We've kind of come full circle for our discussion. And uh, just a reminder that next week we will be switching schedule and switching to Tuesday and Friday release schedules. And Mm -hmm. if you would like access to the Tuesday bonus episode, then become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And of course, if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes. And, um, Follow us at death panel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Je me rencontre à Bastard Garden. You met me in Bastard Garden. I was sure. 
Sous-titrage 